Well, for us this morning, you know, we're continuing to move through the season of Epiphany, uh, and that's the season where we're reminded to reflect on how God is revealed to us in ways that we might not imagine, or maybe in ways that we hadn't noticed before. It could be through people or through conversations. It could be through uh, nature, through creation, which got a good dose during the Christmas break. Uh, our family took a trip to San Francisco. Um, and while we were there, actually, uh, we made the realization that the last time Rachel and I were there uh, was our engagement, which was like 24 years ago. Um, so I had proposed by the Golden Gate Bridge, and so we took another picture, but on the other side. And so, uh, yeah, that's what we look like, babies, babies. Say, Rachel said, yeah, of course. She is. I feel like I'm the same, no? Um, but we did a drive down to Big Sur. We got to, to, to witness just the beauty of the coast. And then on New Year's Eve, um, we drove up to Muir Woods National Monument uh, just for an early morning hike. And so we decided to go on this one trail that you would head up through the, the, the mountain, through the forest, and then it kind of take you around this bend, and then you have this really nice view of the ocean. Um, but right at the beginning of the trail, we see the sign, uh, and it said that the switchback was closed, like it was closed for repairs, um, which meant we'd have to do an additional like mile and a half to get just to the place where the switchback would have taken us. And so we thought we could do it, right? But also, none of us had a full breakfast. <laughs> and so we, we all ran out of steam even before we got to the switchback. And so we headed back down, only to find out that when we read the sign again on the way back, so like in the smallest font possible, like it was tiny font, there was a note saying that the switchback was open, like on Fridays through Sundays. <laughs> and yes, we were there on a Sunday, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But fortunately, it was still an amazing hike. Uh, we got to walk through the redwoods. Uh, it was extremely life-giving, and by that I mean literally, because there was so much oxygen from the trees. Um, it was quiet and still. Uh, and at one point, I saw Rachel doing this really intense, um, it was like a, a back bend, and I thought she was breaking into yoga, only to realize she was taking a video. This, this video right here. It's beautiful, you know, and uh, just to see how tall how strong these trees are, um, which makes it even more impressive when you, you know and understand that these trees only have roots that go 10 feet deep. But horizontally, they go like 60 to 80 feet. And like they uh, interconnect and their whole root systems are spread out. They're intertwined with all the other redwoods. And so it's their collective root system that keeps them connected and they survive earthquakes and landslides and you know, floods, and it's such a beautiful image of what it means for these trees to be in connected community. And it reminded me of just our own community here at Vox um, and how we've navigated so many difficult challenges the last few years. I mean, we definitely weathered some metaphorical earthquakes and landslides. Um, and we've also had to discern some difficult things together as a community. You know, years ago, we had a journey of discernment and becoming uh, an affirming community for our LGBTQ siblings. Um, and just, which meant full inclusion at all levels. Uh, we had to navigate some collective discernment throughout the pandemic, 
right, in order to safely facilitate community and gathering. And then recently we practiced discernment around shifting toward a shared leadership model um, that's non-hierarchical. And through all these, you know, moments of discernment, I think sometimes we did things well uh, and we were able to hold space for difference. And it was also challenging. Uh, and sometimes there was unintentional hurt that was caused or experienced. Uh, and yet through it all, the collective discernment, I think just continued to build those roots underneath and to keep us connected and to protect the health of this community. And so the question I want to explore this morning, you know, is that as we continue to practice discernment, whether it's as a community, whether it's individually, um, what, what is our discernment rooted in? Right? How are we practicing discernment in a way that aligns with the way of Christ? And so in the lectionary text for this morning, uh, we revisit the Corinthian church uh, community that Kimberly touched on a couple of weeks ago. And, and this was an extremely diverse community. I mean, it was multi-ethnic, it was multi-class. And so while, while they were a beautiful reflection of diversity, that also meant very different perspectives and practices. And so when people's discernments were in conflict with each other, uh, it led to some hurtful experiences. And so Paul's writing this, he's offering some pastoral care around how they should engage their community when there are differing experiences. And so we start in verse one. It says, now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by God. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. And so Paul here, he's addressing a very specific topic um, that's created some tension in that church. And so in their time and culture, meat would be offered to, you know, in sacrifices to various gods at various temples throughout the city. And so there were some in their church community that discerned it was okay for them to eat this meat because they knew these idols weren't real anyway, right? Food was just food, didn't have any mystical power. And then there were others who discerned that eating this meat meant you were actually participating in the idol worship, or at least you were complicit in it. For them, it was a matter of conscience. And then there were other people who were just confused when they saw these two conflicting, contrasting discernments play out in front of them. And so Paul's response here is actually to take a step back, right, and offer a larger perspective and framework. Because knowledge, right, knowledge can be self-serving uh, when we're just wanting to prove a point or defend a decision, and it ends up trapping ourselves in our own arrogance and creating separation and isolation from others. And so Paul's offering the alternative of love. He's basically asking the question, is it more important to be right or is it more important to be loving? And Paul says that anyone who loves God is known by God. So there's this mutuality that God models for us where love and belonging go both ways, right? Where knowledge tends to be transactional and then love is meant to be relational and mutual and looks to build and make space for relationships. And so for us, as we practice discernment, maybe we're invited to embody a posture of mutuality, 
right? That builds space for difference in others. And some of what I'm observing about communities in general, and even with our own community, is it can, you know, there's a natural default to, to become an echo chamber eventually, where everyone sort of agrees and holds to mostly the same things. Which I understand there's safety in that, right? And there's alignment in community. But when we practice discernment in an echo chamber, sometimes we don't recognize the blind spots, right? We don't have those different perspectives to potentially create something fuller, more complete, or something we had never considered before. Uh, recently, I watched the documentary American Symphony, which focuses on the music and life of John Baptiste. And so part of the film uh, you know, reveals the deep heaviness uh, that he and his wife, uh, Suleika, they navigate through as she goes through chemo for the second time, um, treating her cancer. And actually, the day she started her treatment was the same day that um, his 11 Grammy nominations were announced. And so they're holding both of these contrasting, life-altering moments both at the same time. And they both talk about how survival for them uh, is a creative act. And that's where their energy goes, towards in the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain. And so while he's supporting her through this journey, he's also working on a creative project where he's trying to answer the question, what if a symphony orchestra was created like today, like here and now? And this is how he reflected on this experiment. He said, if a symphony orchestra was created in 2022, what would that be? What would the music that it played sound like? You'd have classical musicians in there for sure, avant-garde musicians, folk musicians, jazz musicians. There is room for all of us to coexist. There's a space for all of us to be different and quirky and strange and beautiful together. And so he creates this modern version of a symphony that makes space for what's different. So many different musical styles, so many different musical cultures. He incorporates indigenous, indigenous musicians. And they collectively play this reimagined symphony at Carnegie Hall for one night. And I think this is such a, a beautiful creation and image because even though there's this knowledge that a symphony orchestra is made up of traditional classical instruments with very specific sounds and styles that's predominantly Eurocentric, that it's always been done this way, right? John Baptiste is attempting to build something that makes space for others and engage what's different. And it's through those different interpretations of music, different expressions of music, that all of that creates a collective piece that can hold space and the tension of things that might seem to be in conflict with one another. And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is just to reflect on who are the people with different perspectives that we're invited to make space for in a mutual way. And then maybe think about the ways that, you know, pride in our own knowledge has actually limited our ability to love. And then we continue to verse 4. There is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, 
the divine parent, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. And so for this you know, church community that's immersed in a polytheistic culture and worldview, Paul's reflecting on the oneness of God, which is a callback to the Shema, right? It's a traditional Jewish prayer from Deuteronomy. It uh, starts with, hear, O Lord, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so here, Paul is establishing the oneness of God, of Christ, of all creation, right? It's a reminder that we're all part of the mystery of this collective relationship and love that God's created and facilitates. Uh, this is how Father Rohr reflects on the oneness of God. He says, yes, God is one, just as our Jewish ancestors taught us, and yet the further, more subtle level of meeting is that this oneness is actually the radical love union between three completely distinct persons of the Trinity. God is a mystery of relationship, and in its deepest form, this relationship is called love. God in all of creation is a mystery of relationship. And so he's reminding us, right, that the relationship within this mystery that theologians can't quite even explain, within the Trinity, is what creates the oneness of God. And so all of creation, including us, right, we're invited into that relationship. And it's in that space that we're invited to practice discernment with God. It involves a posture of listening and being with the divine, which is actually an invitation to contemplation. And so for us, as we practice discernment, uh, maybe we're invited to practice contemplation that embodies the full image of the divine. Because if everything, including us, right, is created in the image of God, then each person carries with them in their body, in their story, a reflection of God and a unique way to engage and experience the divine. Uh, so as Jeff mentioned earlier during the announcements, we've been trying this new rhythm uh, each spring just to start a book club. Um, so if you're looking to plug into one or a midweek group, um, come out Wednesday night. Kimberly and I are going to host a connection night. Um, but last year, we read The Brain and the Spirit, which was written by our very own Jenna St. David. Uh, it just offered a helpful framework uh, about, around the nonviolent theology that we've been grinding ourselves in. And then this year, we'll be reading Cole Arthur Riley's book, uh, This Year Flesh. And she's also the creator of Black Liturgies, which some of our teaching team has referenced before. Uh, but her book is a reflection on how contemplation and contemplative practices is actually tied to our story and our embodied experience. Because how we engage with the divine, it's not one size fits all, right? It's not the same for everyone. Even though it's God's oneness, right? It's that oneness that actually is a full image of God that's reflected and captured in each person's unique expression and story. And so our invitation simply is just to be connected to that, connected to our story, connected to our bodies. And so this is what she writes. She says, I used to think that Christian contemplation was reserved for white men who leave copies of C.S. Lewis's letters strewn about and know a great deal about coffee and beard oils. That's a vibe. If this is you, there's room for you here. But 
I am interested in reclaiming a contemplation that is not exclusive to whiteness, intellectualism, ableism, or mere hobby. And as a black woman, I am disinterested in any call to spirituality that divorces my mind from my body, voice, or people. To suggest a form of faith that tells me to sit down alone and be quiet? It does not rest easy on the bones. It is a shadow of true contemplative life, and it would do violence to my black woman's soul. For me, most simply, contemplative spirituality is a fidelity to beholding the divine in all things. In the field, on the walk home, sitting under the oak tree that hugs my house. A sacred attention. This is a book of contemplative storytelling, and the pages you hold are where the stories that have formed me across generations meet our common practice of beholding the divine. And so as you cradle these pages, it is my sincere hope that they might serve as, a con as conduits for mystery, liberation, and the very face of God. And so that's something for us to chew on. Uh, and hopefully that gently nudges you towards wanting to be part of a book club. But she writes from her very specific embodied experience. And there's still a lot of overlap in just the human experience that she writes about that's very relatable no matter who you are. And her, inviting it, her writing invites us to consider what an embodied contemplation looks like for us that's actually connected to our own body, to our own story. And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is just to sit with our story. You know, I think many times in our practice of discernment, we're impacted more by what we think others expect or what others want, or maybe even what others have already shared with us. And we haven't truly tuned in to our own experience, tuned in to our own story, and to let that guide our contemplative practice and discernment. And so spend some time identifying the places, the experiences that have really connected you to the divine. And then we close in verse 7. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so Paul closes here with kind of a, a practical reflection of the impact of discernment. Uh, the word he uses there for liberty, uh, excusia, is, is Greek, which can be also translated as authority. And so there's this underlying power and freedom that we're invited to carry in our discernment. And there's a consideration of impact, right, to others. And so he's acknowledging the reality that in a diverse community, people will have different experiences and backgrounds. And so for him, he makes it very clear at the end of this chapter that he's going to go out of his way, or he'd rather go out of his way, not to eat any meat again if it's going to create confusion or conflict with others. And so he clearly values the communal impact over his own personal freedom and is willing to let go of that power that he has, 
which is a callback to the text that Kimberly explored a couple weeks ago, when Paul wrote that all things are permitted for me, but not all things are beneficial. So just because there isn't a limitation on something doesn't make it the most beneficial or loving thing to do. And there does seem to be a consistent theme, though, when it comes to considering the communal aspect, particularly for those who are vulnerable. And so for us, as we practice discernment, right, even as we hold our own freedom and power to choose, we're also invited to use our freedom in a way that protects the vulnerable. You know, if you think back to the early days of the pandemic, we were all trying to figure out what COVID was and how it spread, how to be safe. I mean, there was a lot of confusion. And so, of course, like everyone else, we started offering online liturgy as a way to stay connected. Uh, sometimes I forget what that experience was like. And so I had to jump back through YouTube uh, just to remind myself what it was like. And this picture pretty much sums it up. Um, <laughs> I definitely felt what I looked like. Uh, it was all very disorienting time. <laughs> I really leaned hard into the just show up as you are. Um, but over time, right, over time, we started getting a better understanding of, of this virus. Uh, and then that began to lead to different perspectives and different guidances. And people were trying to figure out how to reopen in a pandemic. And so we had so many conversations as a leadership team, right, about what we should do. When should we reopen in-person liturgy? How are we going to do it? Right? What precautions are we going to take? We were discerning what was responsible and safe. Uh, and everyone else in our community was trying to discern what was meaningful and safe for themselves. And sometimes that aligned, and sometimes there were differing um, perspectives. But I'm grateful that our leadership team had the intention to protect the vulnerable, which at the time were our children, those who were uh, immunocompromised. Right? Even though we had the freedom and authority to carry ourselves a certain way, we were still considering the needs and impact to those who are most vulnerable. And I hope that's something we continue to do and consider as we practice discernment. And at the same time, as I've been sitting with this text, you know, one of the things that surfaced for me um, is how this can be and how it has been used um, in a very hurtful and shaming ways. Uh, especially growing up in a fundamental context, right, where the expectation was that you should just bypass discernment simply for the sake of not causing someone else to stumble, right? So it would almost become performative, right? Like we would have to declare, oh, we're not going to watch any R-rated movies, right? We're not going to drop the F-bomb just for the benefit of those who are weak, you know? And then also with purity culture, right? That, that was an unfair amount of hurtful focus directed towards young girls and women about how their actions and choices could be a stumbling block. But then treating guys as if they're completely helpless and without agency or responsibility, right? I mean, that was completely, extremely unhealthy and hurtful. And I just wanted to name that. And even when we consider how we apply this to our own context, right? Many times there's an unhealthy amount of guilt and duty that somehow I'm responsible for carrying the burden of someone else's spiritual formation indirectly through my actions that aren't even directed towards them. And so, while there are scenarios like Paul is describing, 
I also don't know that I can have this blanket statement that disallows any freedom or room for discernment just because there's someone out there who could potentially misunderstand your actions. And this might seem like a cop-out, but I'm still discerning <laughs> what it means to generally concern the, discern the impact of my discernment, if that makes any sense. Um, and again, this is just kind of where I am. This is my personal reflection. But as we close, you know, the reality is we will inevitably navigate like different issues and topics in this community where some of us may discern differently than others. And my hope for us, Vox, is that in the process of discernment and how we practice what we discern, that we would be rooted and guided by love, humility, embodied contemplation, relational connection, empathy for the vulnerable, and nonviolence. Because how we hold space for each other in community is just as important as the discernment work itself. And so let me close with this prayer. God who is one, connected to all, may we engage you in the unique way that you made each of us to be. Jesus who embodied love, grounded in a posture of humility. May we move beyond knowledge that feeds our ego and instead build space for difference. And spirit who advocates on our behalf, empathizing with us and creating spaces of belonging, may we advocate for and protect the vulnerable in ways that go beyond words. We ask all this in the love of God our creator, the humility of Christ, and the freedom of the Spirit. Amen.